Welcome to another episode of Seniors on the Move. My name is Marva Martin, and I am your host for today's special program. I think we all know that um, it's March is Women's History Month. So our program is based on that today. I have a panel of presenters who are gonna present about um, women who have been very influential in their lives. Either they're publicly known women that people may have heard of before, or they may be reporting or presenting about the, um, a mother or a grandmother, aunt, sister, whoever they chose that they felt was very influential in their lives. And uh, we all know the saying that behind every great man is what? You know, people usually say is a woman, but behind every great man, as far as I'm concerned, is a greater woman. <laughs> okay, so uh, we're going to talk about some of these wonderful great women. Now, and we're going to, um, the let me introduce the panelists to you right now. Um, we have Dr. Ruby Harris. We have Jackie Cairo Williams. We have Yvonne Quinama. Cynthia Green, Willie Weidman Pleasant, and Carol Hyatt. Thank you, ladies, for being with us today. So we're going to start our presentations with um, Yvonne Quinama, who is going to be presenting on Florence Lusser. Yvonne. Uh, Yvonne, you're muted. You're muted. Okay. Florence Lesser. She was born as Florence Ruth Barrett on March 17th, 1898 in Pennsylvania. She attended Wilberforce University and later moved to Boston in 1935. Florence Lesser was the first to head a Boston-wide education committee under the NAACP. She was the first woman president of an NAACP branch nationwide. She served as president of the Boston branch from 1948 to 1951. Florence also worked on the founding of METCO, whose goal was to bus inner city students in Boston to suburban schools in attempt to desegregate Boston schools. During her time with the NAACP, she organized demonstrations near Dudley Square Station in order to tell transit system officials that Blacks deserved a better job. This resulted in six Black men being hired as drivers. She was also the mother of Betty Lucere Warnham, who was the founder of the Roxbury Comprehensive Health Center. Florence Ruth Lusser was an African-American civic leader, activist, and the first woman president of the NAACP chapter. She was a champion of black rights in employment and education. Thank you so much, Yvonne. I had never heard of her, so that's a good, some good information to get. Yeah, Florence Lusser. 
Okay, our next presenter will be Ms. Willie Weidman-Pleasant, and she's um, going to present on Dr. Rebecca Crumpler. Dr. Rebecca L. Crumpler, born in 1831, was drawn to medicine after being raised by an aunt who cared for sick neighbors. She began working as a nurse soon after moving to Charleston in 1852. The North and the South was locked in a battle over slavery when Rebecca became the first African-American woman in the United States to earn a medical degree. With commendations from her work with different doctors, Crumpler ultimately was admitted to the New England Female Medical College in Boston in 1860. Crumpler earned her MD in 1864 and began practicing medicine in Boston. After the conflict ended, Crumpler felt a call to ministry, ministry work in Virginia. When she joined other black physicians to care for free slaves. Dr. Melody McLeod and OBGYN who worked at Emerson University Hospital Midtown, publicized work contribute to um, her, to McLeod's work. She did literature and she did news outlets in regarding her work. McLeod said the work was grueling. Crumpler lived in terrible conditions, caring for sick intense like encampment. Crumpler was denied hospital privileges and some pharmacy refused to honor prescriptions she wrote. Mm -hmm. Some colleagues reported that the MD behind her name stood for mule driver, mm -hmm. but she stayed there despite all that for three years. Ultimately, Crumpler returned to Boston, caring for children out of her home on Beacon Hill. She moved to High Park in 1883 and wrote a book covering topics such as pregnancy, nursing, and other ailments based on journal notes from her years of practice. One of the first medical texts written by a Black author. Crumpler contribution to history has only recently been celebrated. Boston University School of Medicine formed through a merger of Crumpley's alma mater with Boston University, recognized her with an exhibit in 2013. Her on my grave at High Park finally received a headstone in 2020. Oh, my goodness. Very, very interesting. I mean, it's such an important figure in history to to not know, maybe it's me, maybe I'm ignorant, but these people, I, this is the first time I'm hearing of some of these people. This is remarkable. Thank you so much, Willie. Our next presenter is Cynthia Green, and she is going to present on her mother, Christelle Rebecca Watson. Thank you, and good afternoon, everyone. Christelle, my loving and humble mother. She was born in Port Antonio, Portland, Jamaica, West Indies. She, her birth date, November 13, 1919. 
deceased August 2018, age of 98. After listening to my mother's story as a little girl, I realized she had a lot to offer and she was my survival kit for life, for all the things that she has taught us. So I wrote a poem called Mama. I remember back in the day of hard times, hard times are very much real. It was not only the 60s. I watched my mother work her hands off to the bones. She would wash the clothes with a big bar of brown soap with hard waters. She washed for a family of six. Her wrinkled hands tell the tale of the hardness of the soap and water. I now think she was the washing machine we never had. Sometimes tears run down my cheeks when I think of how my mother labored all her love to her family. She remembers Christmas and her precious gift from my father was to her one and only singer sewing machine. It was purely out of love that she would begin and sew these each and every one of us clothes. Mama taught us how to sew dress, hems, and sew straight lines. I also remember how she would ask me to watch over the sewing machine while she ran to the cold stove to check on the food she was preparing for us. God knows. I loved that woman called my mother. I loved her now. I admired her for all the hard work raising our family. Mama, it is now our time to take care of you. Lovingly, Cynthia Green. Lovely, lovely, lovely poem, Cynthia. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, our next presenter is Ruby Harris, and she's going to present on Carrie Best. I was surprised when we started this that I had not heard of Carrie Bess because I was also born in Canada like Carrie Bess and even born in Nova Scotia, but nothing was said about her back then. Carrie Bess was born in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia. She was the daughter of James and Georgina Prevost. In 1925, she married Albert Best, and together they had one son, James. In 1943, Carrie confronted the racial segregation of the Roseland Theater in New Glasgow. She purchased two tickets for the downstairs seating of the theater and attempted to watch a film with her son, James, who at that point was about 17 years old. Both Carrie and her son were arrested and they fought the charges in an attempt to challenge the legal justification of the theater's segregation. Their case was unsuccessful and they had to pay damages to the Roseland's owners. However, the experience helped motivate Carrie 
to found the Clarion in 1946. The Clarion was the first black owned and published Nova Scotia newspaper. It became an important voice in exposing racism and exploring the lives of black Nova Scotians. In the first edition of the Clarion, Carrie broke the story of Viola Desmond, who also challenged the racial segregation of the Roseland Theater and whose story became a milestone human rights case in Canada. Actually, Viola Desmond is now the person pictured on Canada's $10 bills. She's the only woman pictured on Canadian money um, other than Queen Elizabeth. Carrie Best started a radio show, The Quiet Corner, which aired for 12 years. Also from 1968 to 1975, she was a columnist for the Picto Advocate. Picto is a county of Nova Scotia. In 1977, Carrie Best published an autobiography, That Lonesome Road. In 1974, she was made a member of the Order of Canada and was promoted to officer in 1979. She was posthumously awarded the Order of Nova Scotia in 2002. And Carrie Best is now commemorated on a postage stamp issued by Canada Post on February 1st, 2011. Carrie Best died at the age of 98 of natural causes in her hometown of New Glasgow. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ruby. Um, we are learning so much today. <laughs> and our next presenter is Miss Carol Hyatt, um, who uh, I think she's with us, but she, she does not have the report that she wanted to report on. I have a copy of it here. And so I'm going to briefly tell you about um, somebody by the name of Juanita Bernard. Let me get her picture up here so you can at least see who I'm speaking of, this lady, Juanita Bernard. Um, the Girls' Brigade is a uniformed Christian international voluntary interdenominational organization that seeks to foster and develop high moral values in young girls between the ages of five and 19. Um, Juanita Bernard, is clad in her navy blue uniform covered with badges to signify the years of work she has contributed to the Girls' Brigade in Kingston, Jamaica. She has been part of the organization for the past 68 years and has previously been awarded the badge of honor for long and faithful service. Ms. Bernard remarks on the chapter of the organization in her home, Kingston, Jamaica, by saying, I like to interact with the girls as it gives me the opportunity to help mold them 
which is very vital, especially with the problems we are having in Jamaica now. We are happy to have an opportunity to interact with these girls because we believe that the women are the foundation of society, Bernard said. With more than 90 years of service to the young girls of the country, the Girls' Brigade has played an integral role in the development of some of the country's strongest women and even more important, the growth of a nation. That's Miss Juanita Bernard. Thank you. Okay. Our next presenter is Jackie Cairo Williams, and she's gonna present on her mom, Violet Cairo. Good morning. My most influential woman in my life was my mother, Violet Cairo. She was a petite woman, 5'1", size three. However, she was very strong, soft-spoken, yet powerful. She was a medium brown complexion with a fine grade of dark auburn hair, which the photos may not show. She got married young to my father, James Cairo, who was in the Navy with his twin brother here in Boston. I am Bostonian. I was born here. <laughs> she was born in Pennsylvania in 1929, December 26th, and she passed away in August 21st, 1989. But she was raised in Hot Springs, Virginia by her parents, my grandparents, along with an older sister and younger brother. Her grandparents were mixed couples on both her mother and her father's side. On one side, her grandmother was uh, white, a Caucasian Dutch, and the grandfather was black. And on the other side, her grandfather was Native American and her grandmother was black. So we were actually introduced to diversity very young. <laughs> she made sure we knew our grandparents. My mother was kind and humble, yet she did not put up with any adverse treatment. She taught us to be respectful, not to talk to strangers, but be polite, to you know, speak up and stand up for what we thought and believed was right, even if we had to stand up alone, as we would have to do sometimes. But regardless, not to be afraid. My mother, Violet, was very talented, excellent seamstress, knitter, crocheter. We not only always had a great looking wardrobe, but we had a beautiful pillowcases with crochet trim and doilies on our drawers and Chester drawers and, you know, for everything. It just was so cute and quaint. So in addition, she also was an excellent at wallpapering and interior house painting, art with, with paint, um, colored pencils and crayon. And I swear she was a plumber too <laughs> for various things. She taught us to know how to do things as well. So we knew how to do these things, not all like she did, but definitely we've learned a lot. I know how to sew and design clothes, do interior painting and fix small things. Like for instance, the toilet, you know, in the fixtures in the, in the toilet. Uh, my mother also was a disciplinarian without spanking us. Although one time we went to Hot Springs, Virginia, she told us to go out to get a switch 
we had no idea what a switch was. So she had to go out and, and, and show us what the switch was. <laughs> so she taught us to be respectful and to respect ourselves as well as many things. She had things to do because of many of the things she did, she did because our dad was away in the Navy for long periods of time. She showed us independence. Mom taught us how to clean the house early, dust, you know, shine things. So we knew how to do all that. She took us to barbecues, outings, and, and all that sort of thing that it's important to do for family. She also taught us how to do research. We had encyclopedias and dictionaries. We always traveled. We traveled to Virginia uh, and to by train and to um, other places like Philadelphia and New York, sometimes by car. She also taught us our posture, walking with a book on our head, making sure we didn't sit slouched so that we would have good health in when we got older, like no back problems or humpback. We learned about God, Jesus Christ, Moses, Abraham, etc. We went to church here in Boston and in Hot Springs. We had to learn Bible verses for our family dinners for Thanksgiving, regardless if we could read or not as little children. Yeah. And she taught us how to dance, so she was fun. So she taught us how to do the Madison, which was like the electric slide, the stroll, mashed potatoes, twist. She was a lot of fun. She lived by example and taught me so many valuable philosophies, like not to be judgmental and you cannot tell a book by its cover. She was and is my Shiro. I miss her. Oh my goodness, yeah. She sounds like she was a wonderful, wonderful woman and a lot of fun, a lot of Thank fun. You. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Jackie. Um, I'm gonna present last um, and I'm gonna present on Marva Collins, uh, I am her namesake or she is mine, whichever way it goes. But um, you, one of the reasons I chose her is because I've taught, I, you know, I, I wanted to become a teacher because of my sister, Ruby Harris. Um, she always seemed to have a wonderful time with the kids that she was teaching. And, um, you know, and, and she, in those days, when she first started teaching, teachers were shown such respect, so much respect by everybody. And then I also heard about Marva Collins and her school. And I said, you know, I want to be a teacher too. So Marva Collins is who I'm going to speak about today. Uh, a woman passionate about learning. Marva Collins received her early education in Atmore, Alabama, a town where the segregated school system provided very few resources for African-American students. Marva eventually attended Clark College in Atlanta and after graduation, she returned to Alabama. She taught for two years in the Alabama school system before moving to Chicago where she worked in the public school system for 14 years. I'm gonna bring up a picture of her so you can see, see her. This is her at work. Frustrated by the Chicago public schools low standards, 
Collins decided to open her own school in 1975 on the second floor of her home, naming it the West Side Preparatory School. The first students included her son, her daughter, and several neighborhood children, some of which were considered learning disabled. At the end of the first year, every single student scored at least five grades higher on their standardized tests. This is at the end of the first year. Soon Collins' success attracted national attention and she and the Westside Preparatory School were profiled by 60 Minutes, Good Morning America, Time and Newsweek. And they were the subject of a, she was the subject of a television movie called The Marva Collins Story. Her achievements prompted President Ronald Reagan to offer her the post of Secretary of Education. And this just tickles me because it tells you how dedicated she was. He offered her that position, which most, I mean, come on, any teacher would jump at. She declined and she declined because she wanted to continue the development of Westside Preparatory School. And thank God for that. I know many, many teachers and students Thank God that she declined that offer. But at the end of 1996, Collins decided to return to the Chicago Public Schools to supervise three schools that had been placed on probation. She specifically requested the schools with the worst academic records and lowest parental involvement. And in only half a year, improved the rating of two of those three schools by 85%. During the following year, the Marva Collins Preparatory School of Wisconsin opened its doors to its first class of students. And other schools have since opened in Cincinnati, Ohio, and, Ohio, and Florida. Let me show you another picture. Here she is up close, Marva Collins. Collins trained more than, get this, 100,000 teachers since the opening of the Westside Preparatory School and traveled to Africa with the Young President's Organization in order to spread her methodology to educators worldwide. She received more than 40 honorary degrees and in 1982 was honored as one of the legendary women of the world. Collins passed away, Marva Collins passed away on June 24th, 2015 at the age of 78. Wonderful, that was my influence or my motivation. Thank you everybody. I mean, uh, I, I was thrilled to hear about all of the people you spoke of today and how influential they were to you all. And I thank you all for being a part of this show today. Um, so until next time, this is Seniors on the Move saying bye for now.